Again, a new teaching series on the topic of Christmas. I don't want to stress anyone out today, but there's only 38 more shopping days until Christmas, all right? So if that was a reminder you needed, there you go. That's for you today. Uh, this is our sixth week in this study we've entitled Traction. We're learning that life is not just one steady ascent, a time of perpetual growth. It's really more like a set of transitions, one transition after another. And transitions often create a tension that can rob us of the traction we need to grow. And so we've got to navigate these times in the best way possible. And we've learned from God's Word that there's not an occasion, a time, a season through life through which we'll go, that we cannot, with the help of God, gain the traction needed to go where He would take us. And I'd like to teach today about how we can gain traction when the step in front of us seems to be absolutely impossible. And when you are seeking to move forward in life, by the way, how many of you are seeking to move forward in life? All right, let me share this with you. Many times, for those who are seeking to move forward in life, I don't want to be presumptuous, but I believe in the best in you. I believe I'm speaking to people today that want to move forward as God would have. I, I want you to know for those that are in that category, oftentimes the opportunities we have in life come very much disguised as obstacles. The big opportunities we have oftentimes look like great big obstacles. And instead of thinking, man, I can't imagine what would happen if this came to pass, we sometimes think, you know, I just don't know if this is ever going to happen. And that negative part of it all tends to really grow in these moments. But so often the very best things in life, it's just beyond that which seems possible. It's into a bit of territory that makes us feel uncomfortable where we're a bit uncertain. And so we must learn how to gain traction when that which is in front of us seems to be impossible. And we're going to learn from a lady in Scripture today that had huge doubts and fears about her impossible situation. But in the end, she moved forward by faith. And in her case, she literally changed the world. Now, I believe by God's grace, we can learn today as we apply these truths that we're going to study, how we can change our world, our part of the world, our home, our relationships, our outlook on life. We're going to be helped greatly. And so if you're able, I'd like to invite you to join me in standing this morning. So we look to Esther chapter 4. If you're glad you're in church, say amen. 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 Esther chapter 4, I'll begin reading in verse 11. The Bible says, all the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces do know that whatsoever, whether, whosoever, excuse me, whether man or woman shall come unto the king, into the inner court, who is not called, there is one law of his to put him to death, except such to whom the king shall hold out the golden scepter, that he may live. But I have not been called to come in unto the king these thirty days. They told to Mordecai Esther's words. Then Mordecai commanded to answer Esther, Think not with thyself that thou shalt escape in the king's house more than all the Jews. For if thou altogether holdest thy peace at this time, then shall their enlargement and deliverance arise to the Jews from another place. But thou and thy father's house shall be destroyed. And who knoweth whether thou art come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther bade them return Mordecai this answer. Go gather together all the Jews that are present in Shushan and feast ye for me. 
and neither eat nor drink three days, night or day. I also and my maidens will fast likewise, and so will I go in unto the king, which is not according to the law. And if I perish, I perish. And I want you to think of that final statement, if I perish, I perish. Father, we're grateful today that when we open your word to learn, we're opening a living book that you've given to us. I pray that just as our Bibles are open, that our hearts would be open so that you could teach us. Use this time, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. One evening this summer, Lisa and I had a down night, and she decided what we needed to do was have a good dinner together and then make our way to the couch and watch TV. And a lot of times in the summer, all the shows are in reruns. There's not a lot on, and I looked for a show about gold mining or how to build a cabin. None of those shows were on, and so we did what all good parents do. We stole our children's Netflix pass and began to look around on Netflix, okay? And we came across a show that uh, uh, Lisa had already seen several episodes of. And so she turned on the next episode. I hadn't seen any of them. And, and as the show's going, I'm asking about this and that and who's this person and why was that scene intense? I didn't get what was going on there. And she gave me a look uh, with those steely eyes of her. She pierced right through my soul. And uh, it was a look that brought great fear to my life. And what the look was saying is, hey, Steve, we're not doing this the entire episode, okay? And so she hit the pause button and said, Steve, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you the three-minute recap of what you've missed so that both of us can get what we can out of this episode. And so that's what I need to do for us in this room this morning. The words we just read are powerful. If we didn't know the context, there's still a lot of truth to be gained. But I want to give you guys kind of the three-minute recap to bring us up to speed as to what's happened at this point in the book of Esther. We'll get the context here. This story that uh, I began reading a moment ago, it unfolds about 2,500 years ago in Persian in a place called Shushan. Uh, we know that Persia would include uh, Iraq today and parts of uh, Iran, and, and so that's the part of the world they're in. At this time, we know the children of Israel had been taken captive uh, by Babylon. About 70 years earlier, Babylon defeated Israel, and they took many of the Israelites captive to come to Babylon and to serve them as slaves. Well, in the course of time, Babylon, who had conquered the world, was overcome by Persia. And so now Persia is the authority, and they've taken all the Jewish slaves that were with Babylon, and now they're serving the empire of Persia. The leader of Persia was a king by the name of Xerxes, and I'm not a psychiatrist or psychologist, but I'll psychoanalyze him for a moment. His father was an incredible leader. He took over the, the, the uh, reins of leadership from his dad, and he kind of seemed like he had something to prove, a little bit of a chip on his shoulder. And uh, so he was all the time trying to uh, act as though he was a powerful, powerful leader, and indeed he was. On one occasion, he had a months-long party to celebrate his power, and uh, in a strange turn of events, in the course of that party, he he had his queen uh, banished and he decided he would uh, have a, a beauty contest to decide who the next queen would be. One of his counselors was a Jewish man by the name of Mordecai. So we're in Persia. 
We've got the king Xerxes and, and a man that works for the king, a man by the name of Mordecai. He decided as this beauty contest was going on that he would take his cousin, whom he'd adopted years earlier, a girl by the name of Esther, and he would put her into the beauty contest. Now, he said, Esther, don't tell anybody that you're Jewish because a Jewish queen and a Persian empire would not work, and so don't tell anybody about your heritage. Josephus, the famous historian, wrote of this time that there were probably 400 women in this contest. And so here's Esther, one of 400. And as it turns out, Esther wins the beauty contest and she becomes the new queen to King Xerxes. The king had a second in command, a man by the name of Haman. Haman was a terrible person. Haman was the kind of person that the earth was worse because he was on it. Haman was kind of like Hitler before there was Hitler. He had this perverse hatred for the Jews that as we study the Bible, we know there was a satanic conspiracy to attack the Jewish people. And in this case, I believe the devil was using Haman to try to knock out the line through which Jesus Christ would be born. And so Haman had a perverse hatred for the Jews and Mordecai, Esther's uncle, who also worked for the king, if you're following me, say amen. He, he uh, received the hatred from Haman. And, and so Haman comes up with this plan and he kind of uh, secretly and deceitfully works it through the process where he gets approval to have all the Jews in Persia killed. Now, when that was approved, Mordecai heard of this and he was naturally heartbroken. And he had word sent to Esther that she needed to speak up and do something to intervene for her people. But you see, what Mordecai was asking Esther was an absolute impossibility. In the Persian culture, as we read of in our text, we, we learned that you couldn't just walk into the presence of the king, even if you were the queen. If, if the king didn't invite you, you weren't to come. And if you did come, the king would have his scepter in his hand. And if he didn't raise his scepter, that meant you, you caught him on a bad day, you would be instantly killed. Maybe, given the chance that you could actually speak to him, he could still evaluate what you said. And if he didn't like what you had to say, he could have you killed then. And so we see that Esther uh, is in this incredible situation, and, and really the safest thing for her maybe would have been to play it cool. Don't let anybody know who you really are, especially don't let anybody know that you're Jewish. But as we know, drastic times call for drastic measures, and Mordecai made it clear that God had brought her to that point in her life and to that place in her life for a purpose that was worth laying it all on the line. Now the rest of the story, beyond where we've read, is that Esther did step up in great courage and in great wisdom, and she saved her people. In fact, to this day, Jewish people around the world celebrate a feast called the Feast of Purim, and it's honoring this incredible woman of faith who, in a, in a time of crisis, stepped forward, and uh, the Lord used her life to intervene and to save his people. But you see, Esther had a lot she needed to learn before she could move forward. This unwanted transition in her life brought such tension that for a moment she lost traction. There were some things she had to learn before she could move forward. If you're following along today by way of taking notes, the first element she had to come to understand is that overcoming requires ownership. Overcoming requires ownership. Now, I cannot say today that I blame Esther at all, but her first response was resistance. Her thought as she's receiving word from her cousin is, uh, listen, surely somebody else can do this. Someone else can tackle this problem. You're asking me to put my neck on the line. 
Well, she shared that. Mordecai responded to her resistance in verse 13. He said, Think not with thyself that thou shalt escape in the king's house, more than all the Jews. For if thou altogether holdest thy peace at this time, then shall their enlargement and deliverance arise to the Jews from another place. But thou and thy father's house shall be destroyed. Mordecai was saying, Esther, I want you to know God can provide through any means he sees fit. But you can't run from this problem. You can't avoid this situation. This is a battle that requires your intention. He was calling her to take ownership of the situation in her life. He was saying, in a sense, Esther, you're going to be one of two things in this situation. A victim or a victor. Those are your options here. You're going to be a victim or you're going to be a victor. Now, I have found that when something seemingly impossible, exceedingly difficult comes to my life, I, I most often say, I can't do that. And I think I most often think that because I don't want to do that. If it's challenging or difficult or frightening or even new, sometimes our, our first visceral, guttural response is like Esther. We think, you know, maybe someone else can do that. And I understand how we would come to a conclusion like that. There's nothing pleasurable about the front end of an impossibility. But once we discern that it is our battle to fight, we will start to gain traction when we accept it and we dig in. Overcoming requires ownership. I want you to know today that people who are greatly used of God are people that have an incredible sense of responsibility uh, they're not looking to run from battles that are theirs to fight. They're looking to embrace them with all of their hearts. I think of the Apostle Paul when it came to sharing the gospel. He one time said this in Romans 9. He said, for I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh. Paul was saying there, I so desperately want to see people come to know Jesus as their Savior that I'm willing personally to lay it all on the line. I'm willing to give everything, my life, if needs be. Paul did not say, surely somebody else will get to it. Somebody else can spread the news. That's not what he said. He said, sign me up. I will own my responsibility and do what is mine to do. And friends, when you are faced with an impossibility in your life, accept it, embrace it, own it. Now, what I'm sharing with you is not all the victory we're going to find in this message, but I want you to know today you'll never get to the victory side of things in your life if on the front end you're, you're not willing to say, I will own this. I'm going to take it and accept it. This is where it begins. And Esther had to learn that this was so important for her progress. Here's the second element she had to come to understand. Destinies require development. Destinies require development i love the way mordecai speaks to esther in verse 14 is he kind of gives her a question and he's asking a question to probe her heart and conscience and mind and to get her thinking and he says this he says and who knoweth whether thou art come to the kingdom for such a time as this Esther, how do you know that God didn't bring you to this place at this time for this very purpose? And that was quite a statement. It certainly would have provoked Esther's mind. And so she had to think, all right, here's where I am, but how did I get here? 
And she rehearsed her family's history. She thought perhaps of a mom and dad who were brought to Babylon as slaves and in time they died. And she's adopted by an older cousin, Mordecai, who happens to get a job for King Xerxes, who then puts her in a beauty pageant that she wins against all odds. And she becomes the queen to the most powerful man in all of the world. And Esther had to come to grips with the fact that life is not a series of cosmic accidents, of mess-ups, of just haphazard events. She had to look back and see, you know something? God has been working in my life and guiding in my life. No, it hasn't all been easy. It hasn't all been fun. But it is by the hand of God that I am in the predicament that I am now. He brought me to this place for this time. She concluded that she had been divinely developed for the moment of destiny that stood before her. The book of Esther here in the Bible is an interesting book. It's one of only two of the 66 books that make up our Bible where the name of God is not mentioned. Song of Solomon is the other if you're interested. But it's also interesting that the book of Esther teaches us about the sovereignty of God. It teaches us how God intervenes in our lives and how he supernaturally works. And, and it may be true that if you read Esther from one end to the other, you would not find the name of God. But I'm glad to tell you today, if you did take the time to read the book of Esther from one end to the other, you would find God. You'd find him working and guiding and directing. And, and uh, uh, his name's not there, but he is. And Esther was destined for this moment because God developed her for that moment. And sometimes the best thing we can do to gain traction and move forward is take a quick look back and see all the ways God has been working in our lives. I can imagine David standing in the valley of Elah looking across and there's Goliath, this giant whom everybody said that is an impossible enemy to face. But prior to walking out onto that battlefield, David was thinking and even sharing with those around him that were listening, hey, one time a lion came my way, was threatening the flock, and David said I had to fight a lion and I won. And then I had to fight a bear and I won. And he was thinking to himself, you know, this man I'm standing before right now seems to be an impossible opponent for me to fight. I don't think there's any chance I could win. However, when I look back and see what God has been doing in my life, the development that he's been doing, I believe that I'm destined for this moment and for this fight. Friends, just because God is sometimes quiet, don't mistake that to mean he's inactive. God is always working. His word declares in 2 Chronicles 16 that the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong in the behalf of them whose heart is perfect toward him. God often works around us. Sometimes when God is working around us, he's making a racket and he's knocking things over and moving things around. And as we hear, if you would, the racket that God is making, we know God is doing something right now. But don't ever forget that in the quiet times, God is always doing something. And if you can't see what God is doing around you, know this, he's ever working within you to develop you for what he would have for you. I like the way Paul wrote of it when he said, it's God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. And Esther had to trust that God orchestrated the events of her life to bring her right to that moment in time, this incredible, incredible moment. Was it hard? Yes. Was it frightening? Yes. Did she know how it would turn out? No, she did not. But she had to trust that God brought her to that point and that he would see her through. That leads to the third lesson she had to learn. She had to learn that strength requires support. At this point in her understanding, the resistance in her heart has gone. 
She realizes it's go time. This is my battle to fight. I can't put this off on anybody else. This is for me. And uh, I love what she does next. In verse 16 here in our text, we, we read this. She, she sent back to Mordecai these words. She said, go gather together all the Jews that are present in Shushan and fast ye for me. And neither eat nor drink three days, night or day. I also and my maidens will fast likewise. I love what Esther said here. She said, all right, I'm taking point on this. If it's to be, it's up to me. This is my job to do. I'll take point. But she looked to other people in her life and she said, hey, as I'm taking point, I want you to get my back. I want you to make sure that you get my back. And friends, we need to understand today that strength is good, but without support, we'd crumble. We'd crumble. Uh, you could have incredible muscles. I thought of an example today to show you of someone with incredible muscles. I sought for a man among them, but I found none, all right? But uh, if you happen to have incredible muscles, if you had no skeleton, you'd just fall over. You've got to have the support. And uh, I want to add here, this isn't the whole thrust of my message, but this is one of the reasons I'm a big fan of our small group ministry because the fact is, you're not strong enough on your own. And God designed the Christian life for us to need one another and to include others. And one of the great benefits of being a part of a small group is you get battle buddies for the course of life. So Esther sought the support of others, which is a wise thing to do. But listen, the great support that she would find was the support found in the one to whom they would be praying. Yes, those people provided support to her, but if you listen to really what she said, she said, I want to know you guys are in this with me, but really what we need is the power of God. The greatest support we can get, she said, is from God. And so she called the people to pray and to fast. That was what she asked them to do. And they prayed and they fasted. Fasting varies but typically what fasting is in the bible it's setting aside a physical need like eating and that you set it aside for a time it's an occasion where we can say no to our flesh and then double down on our time as we go to god and seek to say yes to god it's it's putting aside the the flesh so that you can become in tune with god in the spirit and jesus taught us that when it comes to these times that seem impossible to us that prayer and fasting are essential for growth jesus christ said in matthew 17 he said how be it this kind goeth not out but by prayer and fasting and some of you've been stymied by an obstacle in your in your path and you've lost traction and, and could it be that you're not dealing with a kind of an obstacle but you're dealing with this kind jesus said this kind cometh not but by prayer and fasting and there are times in our lives where we need to recognize that all of it is a spiritual issue and there is value in prayer and there is value in fasting and there is value in building a team around you where we say god i can't go where i need to go without you i cannot do what i need to do without you and so we go to god in prayer saying lord work in me so that you can work through me that leads to the last truth that Esther just had to get a hold of in her life. She had to learn that success requires submission. Success requires submission. Now, the most well-known statement from Esther's life is found in the end of verse 16. Before going to the king, here's what Esther said. She said, if I perish, I perish. 
And in that statement, we see a heart that really lets go of the reins of her life. And she says, I'm going to have to trust the sovereign hand of God. I'm, I'm turning over all control to the Lord. I submit to him. And friends, I want you to know today, she was not being fatalistic. That was not her way of saying, well, whatever. It was not her way of saying, say la vie, whatever happens here is going to happen here. It wasn't being fatalistic. She was being faithful and saying, God, I'm going to trust you with this. And if I perish, well, then I perish. I think it was reminiscent of Christ's prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane before the cross. In Luke 22, Jesus prayed, Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. You see, Jesus there was consciously and confidently heading to the cross, knowing it to be the Father's will for his life. And friends, today we need to know that success in life is found only when we surrender our lives to God. It's then that he can take over and lead us where he'd have us to go. I love Paul's words in Romans 6 and verse 13 where he tells us, Neither yield ye your members, speaking of our lives, our abilities, our opportunities. He said, Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. Paul said, let me tell you how to have, how to have success in your life. Yield yourself to the Lord. Submit to Him. Say, God, whatever you want to do, you may use me in your pursuit. I remember as I believe God was putting on my heart a desire to start a church, but there was one thing I needed more than anything else. It wasn't finances. We never really did get that when we got going. Uh, it, it wasn't necessarily approval of others or affirmation from others. There was one thing I absolutely had to have I could not do without. I had to have the assurance in my heart that that was what God wanted me to do. I came to the place where I said, God, I, I'll, I'll do whatever you want me to do. I just really want to know this is what you want for me to do. I remember grappling with that question in my heart, and it was during that season that I heard a pastor of one of America's most well-known churches, a very large church, a man who's been used incredibly of God, and he was on a panel and was answering questions, and the occasion for the panel was either his 30 or 35th anniversary of pastor of this incredible, incredible church that's blessed so many people. And he was asked the question, how did you know God wanted you to start your church? Well, when I heard that, my ears uh, got a little bit uh, more open. I wanted to understand his answer. How did you know God wanted you to start your church? And he said, I'm still not sure. And he started laughing, and everybody there started laughing as well. And he was kidding, but he was making actually a much deeper point at the same time. He was acting based on the best information he had in that moment seeking to follow not only the information but the impression that God had placed on his heart and and with an open door before him he and faith kind of looked around and there were no other open doors and God I I sent you leading me this way and there was uh, faith but just like I'm just going to go this way I think that's what God is doing and and man when I heard that it was such an encouragement to me because that's exactly what I was doing you see I had owned the need I looked around and said man people need the Lord and it's not for us to say maybe someone else will do it 
I just had a heart that said, uh, Lord, what would you have me to do? And I felt as though God had been preparing me and, and teaching me and, and working in my life, developing me, if you would. And I prayed and I fasted and came to the point where I just had to say, hey, if I perish, I perish. And what that meant to me is this. Uh, if I perish, I perish. If I go to start a church believing it to be God's will and it doesn't make it, it doesn't turn out well, I'll just have to live with that. But I cannot live with the thought of not using my life as I believe God would have me to use my life. Nestor came to that point. She had no assurance of how it was going to turn out. But she said, you know something? This is what God wants me to do. So I'm just going to do what God wants me to do, and I'm going to leave the results in his hands. And if it's God's will, this is the end of Esther, then so be it. But I must be faithful to that which God would have me to do. Now, some authors who've written on this passage have referred to Esther as being willing to risk. And I understand why they would write that, and I think all of us have an aversion to risk at times, but we also understand there's very little victory in life if you're not willing to risk. But I, I think there's a better way to state it than saying Esther was willing to risk. I would just prefer to say she was acting in faith. She was following the Lord, although she didn't know how it would turn out. She uh, no doubts would have had fear in her mind. She subjugated her fear to the faith that she had in God, and she trusted the Lord. So I was working on this message, I read an article, and it was about a man by the name of George Danzig. Told him an occasion in his life in 1939, it was on the heels of the Great Depression, and he was a senior at Stanford University, and during those days, only the top of the class was really guaranteed a job when they got out. Jobs were in short supply. Well, George began to think about his scholastic career, and he realized he was not going to be at the top of his class. But as he thought, he'd done well in math, and he thought, maybe if I really apply myself, I can be at the top of that class, that one class. And so uh, he began to work, and he came to the end of, the, uh, of, of, of his senior year. He had a final exam, and as he did his calculations, if he got a perfect score on the final exam, he would come out the end of that year as the number one math student at Stanford. He studied and studied. He worked and worked. Uh, the night before the exam, he studied so late, he actually overslept the next morning and got to class late. As he walked in, the uh, tests were on the desk, and there were two other additional uh, problems written on the board, and he sat down, and he began to work on them, and, and uh, uh, then he looked at those on the board, and the time ran out, and he went to his professor after class, and he appealed, please, would you give me some more time to finish this test? And, and the professor, surprisingly, he said, listen, just take the test with you, uh, bring it back by the end of today, and uh, that, that would be fine. So he began to work and work and work, and he did his best to get all of the problems done. On the ones that were written on the board, one he worked at and worked at and worked at and, and finally got what he thought was something close to an answer. The other one, he thought, I have no idea. He just let that one go. The next morning, as he was still uh, sleeping, there was a sound in his dorm. It was his teacher excitingly trying to get into his dorm room. And when the teacher finally came in, uh, he said, listen, you didn't understand something, George. You got to class late. Those problems I wrote on the board were examples to the class of mathematical problems that have never been solved. Nobody's answered those questions. I was trying to share with the class that it's not always easy. There are going to be problems you can't solve, but apply yourselves to the best of your ability to those problems on the paper in front of you. And he said, George, you've just solved a problem that never before has anyone been able to solve. He did the impossible. 
Not surprisingly, he was hired at Stanford University where he served his entire career as a professor of mathematics. Esther was not looking for an impossible assignment in her life. In fact, for her, life in the palace was pretty good. She would have had a whole team of people meeting her needs. But friends, life has a way of bringing the impossible into our lives. Things we might never expect. Things when we first observe, we may, like Esther for a moment, we may take a step back and have a spirit of resistance. But know this, that quite often it's those assignments that look so difficult that shape our lives and lead us forward. To get traction in our lives, we must, we must own it. Don't run from a battle that's yours to fight. We must own it. We must understand that God's hand is, has been working in us. He's developing us for a destiny. We've got to see God's hand on our lives. We've got to pray through it and, and find ways to get the support needed from God and at times from others. And then ultimately, we've got to give the outcome for the situation up to God. Just say, God, I'm not exactly sure what you're doing here. I'm seeking to live by faith to the best of my ability. And God, if I perish, I perish. But what I must do, what I must do, is obey you. The impossible is going to come our way. But when it does, I pray that we, like Esther, would say, God, I want to move forward. Our Father, we're grateful that you indeed are a God of love, a God that cares, a God that sees everything. Lord, even when maybe your name is not present, you are present, always leading, always guiding, always working to a great end in us and through us. Lord, I pray today that you'd help those of us at this very moment that are enduring seasons in our life that we wouldn't have gone out and searched for, going through difficulties we would not have hoped for. But God, I pray that you would infuse our hearts and our minds with a truth from your word today that can embolden our faith and help us to courageously live for you. Lord, I pray for family issues and I pray for career-related issues. I pray for lost loved ones that need to know you. God, I, I pray that you would help us in the course of our lives to trust you and to boldly move forward. Help us, we pray. Our heads are bowed this morning, our eyes are closed in a spirit of prayer. I wonder how many in this room this morning in this first service would say, you know, Pastor, I, I know a little bit about what it is to have something very difficult, almost impossible in my life. And there was something said in the course of our study, a verse you read, a statement made, there was something today that was for me as it pertains to these tough, difficult, sometimes seemingly impossible seasons which we go in life i wonder are there those today by the testimony just to quickly raise hand and say pastor there's something for me in that today that's wonderful thank you so much you may put your hands down now friends this is the sixth week in this study we're closing it out today but i need to remind you where this study began in week one it began with the awareness that all of this is to be lived out of relationship to jesus christ this isn't something we conjure up. This isn't fake it till you make it. This is a life that has its foundation, its base, all rooted in relationship with Jesus Christ. Maybe you're here today and in your heart you'd have to say, you know, Pastor, I'm not 100% sure I have that kind of relationship, the kind you're talking about. 
Well, friends, I'd say that awareness that you would have, that's not a bad thing, that's a good thing because the great news today is this, God loves you. And God has provided for spiritual salvation, which brings the forgiveness of our sins and failures. It brings the assurance of a home in heaven when we die. And, and just as beautifully, it brings an understanding that He's with us in the course of living this life. Maybe you're here this morning, and in your heart, that's where you're at right now. You'd say, I'm just not sure. I'm not certain I have that kind of relationship with God. Well, I, I'm going to be thinking of all these hands in a closing prayer in a moment, but maybe you'd say, Pastor, you can add me to that prayer. I don't know that your prayer would hurt a thing. You're more than welcome to pray for me, and that's kind of where I'm at today. I'm just not certain of that relationship with God, but if I could be certain, that'd be good. And so you'd say, Pastor, as you pray today, you can include me in that prayer. Are there those this morning? Just quickly raise your hand and say, Pastor, that's me. I, I'm not sure, but you can think of me in prayer as you pray for all these hands that were raised today. Pray for me, Pastor. Pray for me. Thank you. Maybe there are other decisions in need of being made. Perhaps you've been saved, but you've not yet been scripturally baptized. As John said earlier, we're looking forward to a great week next week, and baptisms will be a part of that. Why don't you just go ahead and follow the Lord in obedience on Thanksgiving Sunday? Maybe your decisions more along the lines of, of uh, uniting with the Coastline Church family as we seek to serve God together. If you believe that to be His will, I would encourage you to, to follow Him. But folks, I know this. If you're not facing an impossible situation now, if you're the kind of person that wants to move forward, you will at some point.